1: Now I've seen that in person. (laughs) I've been listening to that in my car for months. Uh,
2: That voice you're hearing is Dr. T.R. Levin, not Levine, Levin. And I am Kave. I am your host and Dr. Levin or T.R. as we're going to call you, if that's okay with you. Perfect. T.R. is going to be my co-host today. What are we? We are a medical podcast uh we are sort of humor adjacent and relatively informal and we don't really have a good catchphrase yet so
1: i always thought it was a medical adjacent humor humorous podcast
2: you know what uh i think i may have said that at one point (laughs) i don't even remember i don't know uh but that's what we are so uh this is an exciting gi focused day i am a gi doctor most listeners i think know that at this point but we don't do too many gi focused uh episodes so this is going to be a good one and you are an underrated fund of knowledge in the research world for colorectal cancer screening. You know what it—you know what it is? You're like really straightforward, mellow. You don't sell yourself in the way that some researchers do. I'm going to talk you up because you won't do it yourself, <laughs> but the research you do is really important. Um, and it's really, I think it changes a lot of, in, in a lot of very positive ways, uh, the way we treat and follow patients. So, Let me me just ask you first: what What is new in the world of colorectal cancer research that you've been working on?
1: Actually, I'd like to love to tell you about a uh, study we've been working on evaluating a new blood test. Yeah, colon screening. Yeah, yeah. This is a. uh, There's about there's actually four or five different companies that are kind of have uh, tests in the pipeline Mm -hmm. using some combination of uh, molecular methods of looking for DNA or proteins but also uh using artificial intelligence to try and find the signal that's actually going to be diagnostic of colon cancer yeah yeah so that's a very exciting yeah. you know probably in a couple of years instead of getting a colonoscopy you might be able to just get a blood test
2: yeah that would be amazing that would be amazing Well, that how will the GI world respond to you, to that if you're able to prove that is it going to be a happy response? Is it going to be hostile? What's going to happen? People are going to be like, you're taking away all our colonoscopies. What What's going to be the response is your guess.
1: You know, I think people will initially have that reaction. But when you realize that a third of Americans are not getting screened for colon cancer, and you can suddenly get more people under the tent of colon cancer screening, there's going to be a lot more business, for want of a better word, for gastroenterologists as yeah. a result of all these people getting screened. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I think it's good for, I think the people will just kind of vote with their feet. The patients will tell us what, uh, what, how they're, how they're willing to get screened, how they want to get screened. You know, As you've talked about, and as, as you've worked on the,
2: the screening age is uh, now recommended 45 for starting. I know this is, this isn't really known yet. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on why we're seeing cases earlier. Is it, something that's changing with human behavior? Is it something different about our ability to detect it? What is it?
1: I don't think it's detection. Actually, people have looked at that, and it's not just because we're doing more colonoscopies. Although you do see a kind of a jump up of cases if you look at people 49 to 50. Suddenly at 50, there's a lot more screening going on, and then you do find more cases at 50. But uh, our colleagues in Northern California have looked at this actually within our own data. And it's not because people are just doing more colonoscopies in that age group. There's a lot of hypotheses, a lot of theories. Uh, Obesity is a risk factor for colon cancer. And it's also a lot more common now than it's ever been in American history. Um, There's a lot more antibiotics being used Mm. in kids particularly starting in like the 70s, 60s and 70s. yeah. And that's the age group that, uh, you know, the birth cohort mm-hmm. where uh, we're starting to see those increased uh, risk. So maybe something about the antibiotics change the nature of the bacteria mm-hmm. that live inside our intestines, the so-called microbiome. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some signal that may be related to sugary beverages mm. and which are also a lot more commonly drunk now compared to 50, 100 years ago and uh there's an epidemiologist that i know who hasn't been able to prove it yet but he thinks uh there may be something to do with the way we carry cell phones in our pockets oh, jesus kind thats,
2: that's <laughs> terrifying do you know why that's terrifying because you know if i have my cell phone i usually keep it in my shirt pocket like right over my heart yeah uh, what's what does that mean what is it doing to my heart is yeah. it that's that's so scary
1: yeah the heart is not really a big site of cancer but it might, yeah. I wonder about what it might be doing to your heart. Whether it's, oh, it's, break, it's breaking your heart. It's breaking, oh, my, like, heart. breaking, it's breaking heart. my heart. Breaking your heart. All
2: right. Okay. Let me ask you one more question before we get to our guest. This is a question that I I get a lot, and I don't have any other GI people on the show nowadays to to talk to about this. But I want to hear what your answer is because we, I get this question more than any other question. Actually, the two most common questions I get when people come in for a colonoscopy are, "When can I eat?" Which is the question I would ask, and then the other question is,
0: "Why did, why you, did you go this? into Why this?
2: did you go into this? What? Which? You know, I've talked about this on the show before. You know, it's kind of like a very sort of not very is a lightly coded phrase for what's wrong with you.
1: Yeah, are you some um, kind of weirdo? Yeah, Wanted to what do this what, yes
2: exactly what is wrong with you? which you know, i get that we have a weird gig i get it yeah. but what what do you say to those people
1: i say i get to prevent cancer every day and i can uh, access your intestine where the cancers are growing and the precancers the polyps are growing and remove them and i don't have to give you a scar or do surgery or any kind of incision and you walk out of here and you're totally fine tonight you've had no injury no there's no sutures to remove any of that but we're going to prevent you from getting colon cancer which is an awesome thing to be able to do
2: yeah that's a good answer it's a very good answer i might steal that at some point yeah. um mine is because i like video games um yeah. that's good so Jimmy. that's a pretty decent one <laughs> um all right so let's speaking of uh colons and cancer and fixing problems with our country in regards to healthcare. Let's bring on our next guest, Dr. Fola May. She's an MD, PhD, a gastroenterologist at UCLA. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy this conversation uh, that T.R. and I have uh, spoiler alert already had with her um, breaking the uh, fourth wall of podcasting here and letting you know that we actually did the interview and now we're going to send you to it. kind of like time travel stay tuned if you haven't already please follow us at itunes um, and download and subscribe the show rate and review us if you're on twitter follow us at the house of pod tr
1: where can people find you at tr underscore all
2: right stay tuned back today, we have Dr. Fola May, MD, PhD, gastroenterologist at UCLA. Dr. May, thank you so much for joining us.
3: It is a pleasure to be here. I look forward to our conversation.
1: Fola, I've heard you give a great presentation describing the difference between equity and equality. And I'm, I think for our this audience, uh, it would be great to hear uh, you kind of lay out the differences and why it's important to be really focused on equity. Especially Absolutely. In
3: the Absolutely. Thank you for that question. And, you know, I, you know, as someone who focuses her research career at looking at equity, I do think it's important to talk a little bit about those differences, specifically between those two words. I think sometimes they're used interchangeably. So when we talk about um, equality, we are talking about um everyone given the same means to try to reach the same goal. So regardless of your background, your strengths, your weaknesses, your disadvantages, you're given the same resources and you're trying to reach the same finish line. When we talk about equity though, we're talking about giving the resources that individuals need to get to that finish line. So in public health, there's an analogy of everyone kind of at a start line. And some of those people are in a wheelchair. Some of those people have one limb. Um, Some of those people are completely abled. And unless you support those individuals that aren't completely abled, they're not all going to reach the finish line. So equity is about giving people the resources that they need to meet a certain goal.
2: So along those lines, you are now a member of the Stand Up to Cancer Health Equity Dream Team.
1: Yay!
2: That's very it's a, it's a very cool title, by the way. Um, what what does what does that mean? What does the group do? What and uh, congratulations, by the way, you got like an eight million dollar grant. What are you gonna do with it?
3: Thank you very much. Yes, it's it's kind of cool to be on a dream team. It's like you know. What was that? Was that Olympics, like mm-hmm. the 1990s? Yeah. <laughs> the, the women's mm-hmm. basketball? No, it's a great title. And honestly, we're really grateful for the support from Stand Up to Cancer, which is an incredible foundation that works across different types of cancers to raise awareness and to make sure that people are getting the appropriate information about cancer prevention and care. Um, I am part of this incredible team that applied for uh, one of their grants that they announced about last year this time. And they were looking for people who didn't necessarily work together previously, but wanted to come together to address a problem. The problem being that colorectal cancer is the number two cancer killer in America, and specifically in underserved groups and racial and ethnic minorities, it has a disproportionate impact. So for example, Black Americans and American Indians are more likely to die from colorectal cancer than any other group. So we formed this great group, it's a partnership of individuals in Los Angeles, Boston, and in the Dakotas. And we're gonna be focusing on improving colorectal cancer screening rates in ethnic and racial minority groups and in low income populations. So that is a lot of low income individuals of any background, but especially black populations and Latino populations and American Indian populations working specifically in the Dakotas, we will be working, um, try to, to solve this problem in the Indian Indian health services. So we're really excited about it. They gave us $8 million to do it. Um, it's a very ambitious brand. But um, we've got an incredible team and we just kicked off a couple months ago. So we're trying to iron everything out right now.
2: It's funny cause you think $8 million and you, you think, what well, can't you do with it? But that's a, you got, you're taking on a lot. Yes. <laughs> it's almost, I'm <laughs> sure you are starting to wonder if it's enough, um, oh, yeah. you know, um, <laughs>
3: What? Definitely, we, we we want to double the amount. Maybe <laughs> I mean, this is a problem that's been going on for a while, right? And um, we've been seeing disparities in colorectal cancer outcomes for years, for decades. So, to think that you're going to solve it with one grant, not likely, but what I like about this mechanism from Santa Cruz is that they're making us work across country. They're making us work in several different um, states and several different regions, different patient populations, and we're going to try and answer some key questions that I think we could then use to apply to other populations and then hopefully bring the entire country in on these efforts.
2: Yeah, you have to go to, to the Dakotas for this. Are you going to be there yourself?
3: Oh, I can't wait to go. I haven't gone yet because COVID, it's been kind of limiting the travel. But um, I have not done much work in the American Indian population, despite my work in many other underserved populations. So I'm excited to go and see some of the healthcare challenges they have and come up with some creative solutions.
1: Yeah, I, I've i also heard you talk a lot about uh, medical education and the uh, the pipeline. And just sort of the general kind of lack of representation, I think, in academic medicine. As a, uh, personally, as a refugee from academic medicine, as a uh, cis white man, I found it challenging enough that I bailed. So uh, I can only imagine what the challenges must have been like or must be like for, for a Black woman like yourself. You must have been through some some challenges, but talk a little bit about why representation is so important. In medical education and healthcare generally,
3: absolutely. And I don't really consider you as having bailed, Tr, because you still <laughs> do incredible work, just from a different setting. And we all learn what? from the incredible work you do.
1: I, I, t- I took a much easier path,
3: <laughs> but no, I think what you're bringing up is a really important topic. And you know, we talk a lot about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we led with a question about equity that has more to do with patient care and what we're doing when we when we encounter patients in our clinics and hospitals. But a big part of that is making sure that we have the workforce that is appropriately equipped to help take care of diverse populations. So we know, for example, that patients of certain backgrounds like to have providers that have things in common with them. We know as well that people who come from underserved backgrounds or people who come from um, brown and black communities are more likely to provide care to patients who are also black and brown. So these things matter and they don't matter just because you wanna have a certain percent on a piece of paper, or you want to have a colorful spectrum within the healthcare workforce. They matter because it really impacts patient care and it impacts patient satisfactions. And as we've seen in things like some of the upset outcomes that it actually impacts patient outcome, patient survival and their mortality. So it's, it's a really important issue and it's a big problem. And it starts at the very beginning of our education system. We don't have enough individuals who are studying science in high school and in college to go to medical school, to go to residency training, and then to go on to become specialist doctors. So unless we're addressing the fault lines along that entire pipeline from the very beginning, meaning getting more black and brown kids into situations where they're exposed to science and healthcare, we're not gonna have a higher output at the end where we have a representative um, percent of people who matches the percent of the population that is of color. So we've got a long way to go and there are a lot of people working on this problem. And I say, whether you're working at the high school level, the medical school level, or the training level, there's a lot that you can do to help increase representation.
1: It it probably uh, explains why sometimes people can, with well-intentioned research projects or clinical projects can get themselves into trouble if they don't have the, the right kind of team working on the project. I know you commented on that. That project out of Johns Hopkins and some decisions that they made that were uh, particularly problematic.
2: Can you tell us a little bit about that for our listeners who aren't familiar with this Johns Hopkins study that um, that TR is mentioning here? Can you tell us a little bit about that particular study and your questions or concerns with it?
3: Yeah, and I think you know I I, I don't like um, criticizing other researchers because I'll be the first to say that this career is a tough one and we have to make really challenging decisions every day about how we conduct our science. But I think in this particular study, what they were trying to do was demonstrate that um, providers who were not physician trained could provide colonoscopy services in underserved communities. And a lot of the concern of individuals who read the story was we know that we can provide high quality colonoscopy by specialists who've gone to medical school and who've done residency. And then even beyond that, have had several years of endoscopic training, learning how to do a colonoscopy. They've even met a minimum number of colonoscopies completed to get certified in doing colonoscopies, we feel or many of us who read the study feel that especially in communities who are more likely to die of colorectal cancer, we shouldn't be offering a service that isn't tried and true. So we really want to make sure that we're offering the best quality services to everyone and not having tiers of quality where there's the appearance that um, a service that might not be the ultimate gold standard is provided to certain individuals and those certain individuals happen to be underserved individuals. So it was a challenging study and I think a lot of people have different opinions about it. I actually think from that whole interaction, and there was a lot of back and forth in the media with the author of that study, I think the biggest takeaway was that you you need to be able to discuss these topics. Mm -hmm. There should not be so much sensitivity that we can't discuss the unintended consequences of some of the work that we do and grow from there. So my hope is that if anything, it just opens the door to discussions about some of these sensitive topics so that other people will consider them in the work that they do. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh onecom in the future.
2: Yeah, I think that's I think that's excellent. I, I, I um just to clarify for again for the listeners, so there was this retrospective study and it looked at the abilities of uh three Um, nurse practitioners performing colonoscopies um, and there was over a thousand patients who were brought in for these screening colonoscopies and about 75% of the subjects in this study were black and there's people who are saying wait hold on a second why why is there a disproportionate uh, number of black people in this study having sort of, I don't know if it's experimental, but it's clearly not considered the gold standard, I think, as mm-hmm. you were mentioning in terms of care. Um, and that raised a lot of concerns. The the author of the study, Dr. Kalu, who I think he actually, he's from Trinidad, he can, identifies himself as a person of color. I think that he said that there there was nothing about it in that sense that was purposeful, obviously. But at the same time, just like TR said, if you have a diverse group of people working on your projects, you're more likely to have somebody speak up and say, this, these numbers don't seem quite right. It's the same way, like, if you're like George Lucas and you're making your prequels and there's no one around to tell you that Jar Jar Binks is like a racist caricature <laughs> or that the plot stinks. If, you're, if there's no one around to tell you those things, you're going to get into trouble. And it's, it seems like there's a similar concept in in research. And the, Absolutely. I'm sure there's more cases than this that raise an eyebrow for you.
3: Exactly. I mean, this, this is just one example. And I think the other really key part about that was it wasn't very clear in the study where the patients knew what was going on. Right. So when we take a vow to research and to, to, to save science, we are sure that patients are informed. So it wasn't very clear the way that the study was written, that patients knew they had a choice. You have a choice to go to a fully trained doctor to get this procedure or to a a trained NP um, to get this procedure. And I think even just that information would have helped clarify. But but getting back to your your root question, yes, I think having a diverse um, group of individuals involved in research, people specifically with training and health equity research who are exposed to these kinds of dangers or potential complications of research help prevent you from being in these situations where your research is criticized.
2: You you know, TR can speak to this much better than I can, but a big part of these studies is doing the cancer follow-up. It's not just how many polyps did these people pick up on a colonoscopy. It's, you know, 10 years down the road, five years down the road, how many cancers were missed because even colonoscopy is not 100% you know, when it comes to that sort of thing. So you want to have numbers for that. So I'm curious, did the study or it may be too soon, is the study doing that? Or did they do that this particular study?
1: Yeah, probably not. Yeah. No, they didn't. No, they didn't.
3: Yeah. And that was one of the other things we brought up. I mean, I can't tell you how many media outlets reached out to talk about the study. But um, I think that was another point that many of us brought up, Was that really to say that this is a safe alternative to having a colonoscopy with a fully trained GI or gastroenterologist, you'd want to look five years in the future or 10 years in the future to make sure that there wasn't a difference in cancer rates to make sure that it really worked, that you were really detecting right. cancers and polyps to really disseminate it to a larger group or larger patient population. So, yeah, I mean, I understand, I, I fully understand what, what the authors are trying to do. They're trying to provide a, a very limited source, uh, resource to patients who don't have access. I just think that there's other ways we can do that.
1: Yeah, I mean, Foley, you've definitely uh, dabbled in uh, Twitter, having a Twitter presence off and on over the years. And, uh, you know, just over the weekend, I had a, a very minimal experience with just making a, a very mildly pro trans uh, comment on Twitter. And just the number of people who just kind of started coming out of the woodwork, sort of criticizing my medical background and, uh, yeah, things like, you know, it was like there was a, and so it was kind of uh, mind blowing. So I'm wondering how you, I'm sure you've run into some, quote unquote, Twitter trolls uh, over the years. And has that caused you to pull back from your social media presence? Or are you still pretty, pretty active out there?
3: Uh, it's a good question. And first of all, I'm sorry that happened to you. I, it's kind of funny how the social media has been perceived in medicine. I honestly don't think it was that long ago, probably tr probably just seven years ago or so where even the idea of saying anything on the internet or on social media about healthcare was just a huge taboo. I mean, You're almost kind of like outlawed for even appearing to to broadcast information like that. And it's really taken a a complete swing in the other direction where, especially I feel as a researcher, it's hard to stay very relevant unless you are on social media. There was a study that was published, um, I think it was about a year ago, that showed that when you tweet about your scientific research, it is more likely that that research will be cited, meaning that more people will refer to that research in the papers that they write. And that's one of the endpoints that's really important for scientific researchers to demonstrate that their science is impactful and for promotion and things like that. So it's really taken quite a shift. Um, I have been on and on, on and off active, and I, honestly, I think it has more to do with how busy my kids <laughs> yeah. And how much time I have to do social media, but I've enjoyed it because it's actually put me in touch with a lot of people that I don't think I normally would be able to collaborate, collaborate or interact with. I mean, even you and I have interacted over tweets. I've had people share study ideas with me over tweets. I've certainly met um, trainees and young physicians from all over the country who've reached out to me who slipped into my DMs to ask Mm -hmm. for a meeting, to get some career advice. So I kind of like it for that reason. But yes, there's always that moment before you press tweet Mm -hmm. where you review the tweet and you think a little bit about how it's gonna be interpreted, make sure there aren't any spelling errors. And there certainly have been a couple of times where people have responded weird ways. Interestingly enough, um, a a year ago, I wrote this op-ed for CNN and I thought it was like the most benign thing. It was about, Colorectal cancer. It was right after the death of Chad Bozeman. And I talked about how impactful this disease was and how specifically in black Americans we needed to be more aware of this. I got hate mail, hate mail from, you know, I tweeted it. People were saying it's not just black people. I can't believe you wrote this article. I mean, I've learned from people you just don't respond and you move on because when you engage a lot of these people, it gets worse, But you yeah. know, crazy people are crazy. You just yeah. have to let them be.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's no getting around it. Um, I used to try to challenge each one and yeah. try to educate them. and. Now, with the exception of like when Larry the cable guy tweets back at me for a thing that's transphobic <laughs> that I, I call him out on, with the exception of something like that, like i I usually leave it alone and unless I yeah. want to make fun of them. Um, absolutely. But, but that is a big part of it. That's a big part of what you you have to do. I just need to toughen but, up my skin a little bit. So well, like
1: if I want to get out there.
2: It, it's yeah. important. I'll, I'll tell you why it's important for people, like both of you guys who are involved in research to be actively online because we're living in this era of preprint pandemonium and there are if there's space in the narrative it's going to be filled by people who are spreading misinformation bad science or even they might be bad actors and doing it on purpose maybe not who knows but now more than ever it requires people like you to be out there challenging data that's that's out there because the the way information spreads now in this day and age it's going to be so fast and it requires us and by us I mean smart people like you to be constantly vigilant do you know what i mean so you need oh, to have yeah. a social media presence you need Thank to make you. those
3: connections Thank you for the motivation to keep tweeting. I will. Yeah, keep tweeting. I will take the challenge. No, and it's been really inspirational. I mean, there's the people who reach out to you every once in a while and they say, I'm really glad you tweeted that or that you stood up for us or you said this or you brought that to my attention. I've had plenty of people say, I got a colonoscopy because I heard you speak or I saw one of your tweets. I mean, that's enough to make my day. So, on that alone, I I think it's important.
2: Yeah, I absolutely agree. So in terms of how uh, COVID has pushed back colon cancer screening, I mean, as you know, colon cancer screening is a a massive issue in this country, we have a lot of people that need to be screened, we have a lot of people we need to still convince to get screening, and COVID has not helped the situation. And am I wrong for believing that it's affected racially diverse low income communities more? Uh, And if so, why?
3: Yeah, uh, this is a big problem. I mean, we focused on the COVID pandemic. And rightfully, we should have because people were dying from this mysterious disease at first. And then we got better at, at understanding what was happening. But there was still a lot of hesitancy about going anywhere near a healthcare center unless you absolutely had to. And we understood that. But what did that mean? That meant that in some healthcare systems, we saw a 90% drop in screening colonoscopies. And let me remind you screening colonoscopy is something that everybody is supposed to get starting at around age 45 it's a life saving procedure. It helps us find these polyps. It helps us find these cancers before it's incurable. And we went to a point where all of the endoscopy centers in the nation were doing no screening colonoscopies. Now, of course, we've recovered from that. But we haven't gotten back to our baseline. And let me tell you, even when we get back to our baseline, we're not performing well because even before the COVID pandemic, we only had about 68% of Americans screened. You're you're right that, um, and racial ethnic minorities, so specifically um, American Indian, Latino, and Black American populations, the screening rates are lower than we see in white Americans. So we, we already had a difference in utilization there. And what we've seen after COVID is that some of the health system that these individuals are more likely to seek care in, like federally qualified health centers or community health centers, had taken some of the biggest hits in screening rates. So we anticipate that there's gonna be a while before we rebound. And unfortunately what's gonna happen when we rebound is we're probably gonna see a lot of late cancers. And that's what's I think the most disappointing thing. And, and we're starting to see that now, You know, people presenting with stage three, four disease, when if they had come six months ago or a year ago, it would have been stage one or even a pre-cancer. Um, I like to tell people that if I can find your colorectal cancer, with a colonoscopy at stage one, your survival is over 90%, but if we delay things as we've had to during COVID and we don't diagnose it until stage four, which is advanced disease, your survival drops to 13%. So this is why the time of getting screening is really important. Everyone needs to get it done right at 45.
1: Let's talk about the 45, uh, year old uh, starting age for screening i know when the usps us preventive services task force made that step to kind of start screening at 45 you pointed out that we're talking about a lot of people being added to the pool needing screening so any thoughts about how we get there as a country as a healthcare system as a bunch of gastroenterologists responsible for screening all these people
3: (laughs) I I mean, you're right. It's kind of a double hit, right? We got hit with COVID, which plummeted our screening rates and made in everyone nervous about going into healthcare systems. And then we got hit again with um, the screening rate dropping, meaning that the United States Preventive Task Force lowered the screening rate uh, age from 50 to 45. Now, of course, it's good that they did this. We were noticing more colorectal cancers in young adults unfortunately more 30 year olds, 40 year olds were getting colorectal cancer and dying from it. There's, there's, definitely a good reason that they lowered the screening rate. But what did that mean? That meant that suddenly overnight, so they made this recommendation, I think it was May 21st. So overnight, there were 20 million Americans who suddenly were eligible for a colorectal cancer screening. And that's, that's like a nightmare, right? Public health nightmare on top of the COVID pandemic. So we've got a long way to go. And I think now people are starting to feel more comfortable about going back to healthcare systems and getting colonoscopies. More importantly than that, we need to embrace non-colonoscopic screening modalities. So everyone talks about colonoscopy as a way to screen for colorectal cancer. What people don't realize though is that there are other ways to screen. One of these is this home-based stool kits Yes, it does require you to submit a sample of stool and this little kit and send it into a lab, but it can be life-saving because what it's looking for is signs of either blood or DNA in the stool that can be an early sign of colorectal cancer. And only the individuals who have an abnormal or positive result need to go on to have that colonoscopy. So I think to answer your question, TR, if we really embrace multiple modalities to capture all of these people. If we can rebound and encourage people that it's safe now to go back to health systems and that we're safely redoing colonoscopy, I think we can get our rates back up, but it's gonna take some time.
1: And having that non-invasive option is a great choice for people who might be concerned about coming back into the hospital or the medical system. If they don't need to, you can do this at home. Absolutely, concerned. In, get, your, get your colonoscopy when you if you really need one.
3: Exactly. People who are concerned, people who have access issues, which we know is, is, is more likely, and racial ethnic minority groups in an underserved population. So there's many benefits that we have multiple modalities. I think we're lucky in colorectal cancer. For a lot of the cancers we screen for, there's only one way to screen. We have seven recommended modalities. I mean, it's a stool-based test. It's the colonoscopy. There's also the CT colonography, which is a special kind of a CT scan. These are just a few of many recommended ways to get screened for colorectal cancer. There's no excuse people, get it done.
1: (laughs) We're also lucky because our screening is actually effective. When we do do a lot of work on a lot of cancer screening, but not sure we're helping people. So we're really lucky that the evidence is so strong.
3: Tried and true, no debate about it.
1: I feel really good about us, guys.
3: (laughs) We're phenomenal people. We stomp out cancer, aren't we? I like to call myself the polyp detector.
2: (laughs) Oh, that's you got a a real rock and roll name you got there, buddy. (laughs) It's pretty great. Um, well, okay, listen, uh, on that note, thank you so much. That was. That's a good place, I think, for us to end this particular episode on. I know you have a lot going on. I really appreciate your time here with us. you got a lot of really great stuff going on. Where can people follow you to see what's happening?
3: Absolutely. Um, I am on Twitter, and my name on Twitter is Dr. Fola May, so D-R-F-O-L-A-M-A-Y. And I'm also on Instagram, um, same name, Dr. Fola May. And I'd love to interact with people on those platforms and to hear what you think.
2: And also, uh, can people, should people follow the ABGH as well?
3: Absolutely. So I am a proud uh, co-founder and member of the Association of Black Gastroenterologists and Hepatologists. We formed about a year ago, and we also have a a Twitter, um, we also have a Twitter handle that is Black in Gastro. So please follow us on Instagram and on Twitter as well.
1: Kaveh's still waiting for his shirt. From, yeah uh, was, oh
2: we gotta get shirt. you a shirt
1: yes please
3: and a and mug one of your co-founders sophie Balzora, is one of
2: my you know routine co-hosts and she still won't give me a shirt
3: <laughs> oh i love sophie i will remind her now
1: thank you all right uh tr where can people find you as well i dabble in twitter at tr underscore levin levin
2: help people follow tr to make him more active on twitter please well now um, he's scared yeah come on it'll be fun yeah. we'll have fun we'll have a good time together come okay, on good. enjoy the party good uh, all right thank you both so much thank sure. you i'm gonna make it weird for you. you should be warned okay
3: i love it